This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Welcome to Episode 3 of a three-part series on Grace Enough, where we are discussing mental health and you, the follower of Jesus. While each episode can be listened to independently, listening to all three episodes will develop a greater empathy for those who suffer with a psychiatric diagnosis, and it will add more tools to the sufferer's We are closing out the series with Dr. Michelle Bankston, who not only works with individuals as a clinical neuropsychologist, she has personally experienced depression. She shares a little of her story with us, in addition to the role scripture played in her healing journey. She also discusses the impact social media exposure has on our mental health and the difference between feeling down and clinically diagnosed depression. Michelle has a number of free resources and books, all of which are linked at graceenoughpodcast.com slash depression. You will also find episode one, Battling Anxiety with Kara Snyder, and episode two, Psychiatric Diagnosis and God's Word with Ed Welch at that link. Good afternoon. It is great to have you on the show, Dr. Michelle Bankston. Thank you for being here. Oh, it's my joy. I'm excited about this conversation today. Me too, because I, as many of my listeners know, am someone who also deals with depression. And so you, um, before we, we dive into what your background is and how, um, you not only have worked with people who have various mental diagnoses, but you have also walked the path. Tell everyone a little bit about how you came to know Jesus and um, uh, just a little bit of your faith journey. Yeah, I was raised in the church and my parents were church planters. So we were there every time the doors were open. In fact, we were usually the ones to open the doors (laughs) (laughs) and set up the chairs and make sure that the sound system was working and all the things. But because I was raised in that environment, I was fortunate to come to know Jesus very early in life. Mm. I accepted him as my savior when I was seven and just continued wanting to get to know him better as a friend. But if I'm being really honest, I didn't really learn what it meant to make him Lord until I was well into my adult years. He was my savior. He was my friend. But it was only after having gone through some stuff that I realized, oh, but that making him Lord really means giving him control Mm. over everything. And as a firstborn type A, letting (laughs) go of control can be kind of difficult sometimes. Oh, yes. I'm not even a firstborn, but I am Taipei. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, don't you think, I mean, you're you're a podcaster as well. And the more and more conversations that I have, and just the more life that you live, I mean, don't you think that's more of the way God works? It's not 
a one-time decision as we tend to paint it to be. It's um, really a working out of your salvation, which is exactly what the Bible says. Yes. But you know, I think a lot of times, Amber, those who come to know the Lord later in life, it seems like sometimes they have such an amazing transformation. Mm. It's almost like God downloads greater understanding to them in a shorter period of time. Whereas those of us who come to know the Lord as children, it just is what it is, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It's part of who you are. It is. And so sometimes we have to actually go through some things for the Lord to teach us some of those deeper lessons. I wish it weren't so true, but um, <laughs> usually we learn and, and you being a neuropsychologist knows, I mean, our experience really does play in to so much about what we believe about God, what we believe about each other. I mean, all kinds of things. And so I do agree with you that transformation seems so much more quick, but I will never, ever be sad about the gift it is to know Jesus from an early age, right? Because some of that, it's just a gift. It is. That it's not something you have to like go back and build a whole foundation again. (laughs) Yeah. So you are a neuropsychologist and you actually worked obviously with the brain because that's what that means. But, But the thing is, is that you have also walked this path of dealing with depression in your life. Tell me, when did you first realize that you were depressed? And what did the treatment for you look like early on? I was raised in a home with a mother from another country who suffered with major depression my entire childhood. But I didn't know that's what it was. I would mm-hmm. I never heard the term depression when I was growing up. It was just like that was her personality. And so I just chalked it up to that's how she is. Mm. Then I went into the field of neuropsychology and started treating patients and recommending all the things that science recommends. And then I had my first child. And Mm. two weeks after I had my first child, my mom called from another state and said, honey, how are you? Just calling to see how the baby is. And I just burst into tears. Mm -hmm. And she said, what's wrong? What's wrong with the baby? And I was like, nothing's wrong with the baby. The baby is perfect. I don't know why I'm crying. I'm crying all the time. I can't stop crying. And she said, put your husband on the phone. And so I phoned to my husband and she said, Scott, I think Michelle's got postpartum depression. You need to hang up the phone with me and call her OBGYN and get her some help. And the interesting thing about that is I diagnosed postpartum depression in thousands of patients, Mm -hmm. but I couldn't see it in myself. Mm -hmm. So I got in with my doctor. He put me on some medication. It helped. Life got back to normal, as normal Mm -hmm. as it could be when you have a baby and then a toddler, right? Mm -hmm. And then it it wasn't probably for another decade before I really experienced severe clinical depression. I was working... In the private practice, I was working probably a hundred hours a week. My husband had been diagnosed with cancer. And so I did what I'd learned to do my entire life, which was just jump in and do more. Mm -hmm. I would work at the private practice until midnight or one in the morning, drive home, take a quick shower, take a quick nap. And I'd be back at the private practice by three or four the next morning. And I did it for months. And how old were your kids at this point? About... Mm, 10 and six continue. Yeah. I mean, my husband wasn't able to work. And so I took it upon me. Now 
God never asked me to do them. That's right. And I realized that after I went through this, but one day I was at the office and I just doubled over in pain in front of a patient and I thought, Ooh, something's not right. So I kind of wrapped up with that patient, took him up to the front where my staff could help them. And as I'm walking back to my office, my husband walked in the back door, took one look at me and said, you don't look good. I said, mm. I'm not good. Something's wrong. We need to go home. And on our way home, I became very sick and he took me to the hospital and very long story cut short. I ended up being put on medically induced bed rest for five months I had two emergency surgeries. I was kept alive on IV hydration and nutrition. I dwindled from 113 pounds down to a skeletal 74, just 30 pounds lighter than I am today. Mm. And the longer I remained in that sick bed, the more depressed I got. All I could do during that time was listen to praise and worship music, mm-hmm. pray, watch sermons online and sleep. It was all I could do. And I remember crying out to God and saying, if this is going to be my life, I'm not sure I want to keep on living. Yeah. And I slowly over time started doing all the things that I would normally recommend to my patients to do. Mm -hmm. I made sure that once I was medically stable, I made sure that I was prioritizing nutritional food. I started getting back to exercise. I prioritized rest. I got on medication. I went to counseling and Amber, what I want your audience to know is all those things helped, but for me, they were not enough to take the depression away. And I cried out to God and I said, I'm doing all the things that I would normally suggest to my patients to do, but something is missing. And I cannot go back to that practice being a doctor, recommending things, unless I know they're going to work, something is missing. And I would look around at friends and family and people at church and just think, I must just be joy immune because I'm I'm doing all the things, but joy is elusive. Mm -hmm. And one night before the second emergency surgery, a friend called in. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but sometimes when we're going through a hard time, people will put what I call Bible verse band-aids on our situation, thinking that for a Bible verse, that's going to make everything better. And it's like the worst thing you can do. It is. But this friend, I knew her heart. (laughs) I knew her heart for me. And she said, Michelle, I know you already know this, but I just feel like God wants me to remind you that although weeping may last for the night, Mm -hmm. his joy comes in the morning. Mm -hmm. And it was like in that moment that the light bulb went off, like, wait a minute, Jesus came to give us not only joy, but overwhelming joy. And if his joy comes in the morning and his promises are as much for me as they are for everybody else, I cannot be joy immune. Mm. I really started looking then, okay, what's the missing piece? And God really, I've never heard the audible voice of God, but it was as if he whispered to my heart, as long as you don't look at the spiritual contributors of disease, it is like you are putting a bandaid on an infection and hoping it gets well. Mm. I realized in that moment I had been addressing the physical and the emotional and the mental, but I didn't even know there was a spiritual component of things like depression or anxiety. Mm-hmm. That began a life-changing journey. Well, and oh, I want to—I I like want to go all the way back, but then I'm afraid I'm going to forget what I want to ask about the spiritual part. But pause on that for a second because my first question is going back to your mom. Like, did she know she had depression throughout her life? 
but just never talked about it because more of the the time that you that she lived in because it's interesting to me that she identified it in you immediately and reached out to your husband she knew that she suffered from depression and her mother and her sister suffered from depression and she got help i can she just didn't talk about it she didn't talk about it with me yeah and she was from another country where you don't talk about your feelings and you know you keep a stiff upper lip and And she did that, but she did recognize that she had it and she got help, but it wasn't until after I left the house that she got on medication. Okay. That made all the difference in the world. She was a totally different person once she got on medication. Yeah. Before continuing our conversation, I want to take a moment and acknowledge that depression and all mental health diagnoses can be difficult to discuss and more difficult to understand. While I agree, as a Christian, we have an enemy seeking to kill, steal, and destroy us, I do not believe the enemy has access to our brain chemistry. With that said, the enemy's influence on our circumstances and the world at large does impact our brain chemistry. Why do I share this? I don't want anyone to think the sole reason they are clinically depressed is only due to the work of the enemy. Sometimes our brains, as Dr. Ed Welch says, sometimes they're finicky and they need some extra help to process. So as my conversation with Dr. Bankston continues, please view it through that lens. Okay. And then my other question is, before we dive into this spiritual dimension, is do you think that the goal of treatment for depression, for anxiety, for, let you know, narcissism, the list goes on and on, um, do you think that the goal should be complete healing or do we kind of have our mindset skewed a little bit? If we are pursuing healing, and we include God in that healing process, I think God takes us through layers of healing. We're Mm -hmm. like an onion and he never cuts right to the core. He slowly peels away layer after layer after layer. And I think some people do get complete healing this side of heaven, but I think for a lot of rare, it's a process and he teaches us new things the more we open ourselves up to hearing from him. What I know to be true is that we have a very real enemy and that enemy will always go back and try to attack Mm -hmm. us where we were weak before. Mm -hmm. So if an area of struggle for you is depression or anxiety, even after you get some healing from that, the enemy is always going to go back there first because that's where he was effective before. And so I will have people write to me all the time and say, you know, I was doing so good, but but now I've fallen down the hole again. Mm-hmm. And I tell them, don't be ashamed of that. That's not your fault. That's the enemy trying to take you back to where you got freedom from before. So use the tools that were effective before and keep working towards that new level of healing. Yeah, I mean, and I asked that because um, in a conversation I had with uh, Dr. Ed Welch, he was saying, you know, sometimes we don't identify enough with the suffering Christ. And if just the identification with that and not letting your goal always be healing, but instead, like you said, this sanctification process 
of layers of healing can really alter your mindset a little bit of like, oh my goodness, am I pursuing the wrong thing? Now that doesn't mean that you shouldn't pursue some healing, but I mean, sometimes we just pray so much for something to be completely gone instead of I can identify with Christ in this, please help me to renew my mind day by day and so on and so forth. I think sometimes we get in a trap of idolizing the healing rather than seeking after the healer. Mm, Yeah, amen to that. Absolutely. So tell me when you talk about that spiritual dimension or um, the spiritual aspect, what was the start of your journey when um, you began to pursue the spiritual, you know, m- maybe it's lies. You you talk a lot about that, uh, that we believe and how that contributes to depression. Go ahead and talk about some of those things um, that you pursued. And I'm certain that you're still pursuing. I really sought after the Lord because I thought, I'm not exactly sure what you mean, that if I don't address the spiritual dimension of disease mm-hmm. and he took me to John 10, 10. Mm. which says the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. And I thought, okay, Lord, I get it. We have an, we have an enemy. I get that. But, but what does that mean? And I feel like as I studied the word, God showed me that the enemy comes to steal our peace, kill our joy and destroy our identity. And if he can do those things, We won't live in victory, but because Jesus came so that we could have life and have it to the full, that's where we want to put our focus. And the the way he steals our peace largely is by whispering lies to us. And there's a reason that Jesus tells us in scripture that we need to take every thought captive. We have somewhere between 50 and 70,000 thoughts a day. That is a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And I remember telling God several days, this just feels like too much work today. Amen. And it is work. But the more we will attempt to take those thoughts captive, the more we will realize what lies the enemy is feeding us that is a slippery slope down into worry, fear, anxiety, depression, all the things. You know, something like feeling I was joy immune. I accepted that label for a while until that friend called and gave me that scripture. And it was like the light bulb went off. Wait a minute. If Jesus came for all of us to have joy and he acknowledges that weeping may last for the night, but his joy comes in the morning, it's a lie that I'm joy immune. And that's, that's how the enemy works. He'll insert these thoughts in our head. You know, I was working on a a presentation and I'm not very tech savvy. So a friend was helping me with my PowerPoint slides. And she said, you know, Michelle, I just need to know what it is you're trying to convey here. I'm like, I don't know. I'm just so stupid. Oh. And I accepted that momentarily. But my then 10-year-old son was working on homework at the table and looked up yeah. and said, only if you believe that lie, mom. Mm-hmm. And I was yeah, like, we call those no word curses in our house. Stop word cursing right. yourself. <laughs> exactly. But yeah. had he not said that, that lie had already slipped in and started to take hold. I was like, you're right. I am not stupid. I have the mind of Christ. I just need to slow down and figure out what it is I'm trying to convey. But that's how quickly we can believe a lie, receive it, and then 
acted out in our life. Well, and I think the thing too, though, is that you don't even believe it quickly because it's something that actually you've been telling yourself for decades, a lot of times, and then it takes a long time to get rid of it, you know? So it feels like it's quick. And I mean, it is quick because it comes off of our tongue, but I mean, most of the time that's where the neuro piece comes in, right? The tracks in our brain that get laid down and they dig into ruts of, I'm not enough. I'm never going to measure up to X, Y, and Z, whatever, whatever that lie is that you tell yourself. And so when it talks about taking your thoughts captive, what I hear people say a lot, and I can resonate with this. Well, I know that's what I'm supposed to do, but I don't know how, how do I actually do that? So yeah, how, how do we do that? You know, part of it is realizing that we're not in this fight alone. When Jesus left this earth, he said, I have to go but I'm giving you the gift of the comforter who will remind you of all truth. Mm-hmm. And that's the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit can't remind us of anything we've not already exposed ourselves to. Mm-hmm. He can't remind us of scripture if we've not heard it, read it, spoken it, somehow come across that before. And mm-hmm. so that's where our responsibility comes is to know God's word, be in God's word, So that when those situations come up, when we hear those lies and we don't even realize that, that's when the Holy Spirit can remind us of what the word of God says. Where I find myself knowing that I've got to check with the word of God is when I start going down the path of what if, what if this, what if that, then I realize, oh, wait a minute, I am starting to worry. And what Mm -hmm. does God say about that? God tells me, do not worry. Do not be afraid. Be anxious for nothing. I will fight for you. I will go before you. I will be your provider. And so that's where I have to realize what it is I'm thinking. Ask myself, where is that coming from? And is that consistent with what God God says? Because if it's not, then it's coming from another kingdom. And that's not a kingdom I want to align myself with. Yeah. Well, and I love Tyler Staten, who's a pastor. He says, we get in a, like in the Western world, we often pray the problem instead of the promise first. And like, if you pay attention in scripture, most of the time people start with praying the promise. And I think that's where that joy in the morning comes. Like, if you just say the verse to me and I'm feeling depressed, I'm like, well, where's the joy? You know, like I'm mad at you right now because I'm trying all these things and the joy's not coming. And that's where I think that practice of saying, okay, God, you've said joy comes in the morning. And so I want to hold you to that promise, bring joy in the morning, you know? And so praying promises back to God is something that's really helped transform me. Yeah. During that time when I was so sick and very depressed and not sure I wanted to go on living that verse that the friend shared about joy coming in the morning resonated so much with my heart that I wrote it down on a post-it note and Mm -hmm. I stuck that post-it note to my IV pool. And every time I saw that scripture, I read it out loud three times. And the reason I did that is because the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And then I would hear another verse in a sermon or in a song. And I would write that down on a post-it note. Mm -hmm. By the time it was all said and done, Amber, I had over a hundred post-it notes everywhere. They were on my bathroom mirror. They were on my light 
switch. They were on my IV pool. They were on the dashboard of my car. And every time I saw them, I repeated them out loud. And they went from being head knowledge to being truth. And so now, because they are such a part of me, When I get those thoughts and I'm starting to go that wrong direction down that slippery slope again, I'm more likely to remember God's truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, because we do go down those paths again, right? And so that is where memorization and um, habits and practices really matter because we, we just, we're not, like you said, if we're not exposed to it and we're not practicing it, it's not going to show up when we need it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I have learned so much in my journey with depression and it is, it can be really, really tough and it can be really, really tough for those who love us to understand because like my husband, he's like, there's nothing wrong with your life. You know, I mean, he doesn't say that now, but early on it was like, I mean, there's nothing wrong. There- <laughs> I'm married to the most eternal optimist. Yeah. Get it. He's, right. never, he's never experienced it. And so we can't blame them for not understanding right. just like I can't, you know, I can't understand what it's like to lose a child because I've not lost That's a child. Right. That's right. But it was, it was during that time that the only thing I could rely on were God's promises mm-hmm. and those post-it notes. And that's what really contributed to the latest book. Today is going to be a good day because yeah. I, I had to remind myself of God's promises and it started with a simple Facebook post Mm. years ago. Today is going to be a good day because God's joy comes in the morning. Yes. And I found other people needed that lifeline to hold on to as well. Yeah. That began what is now over a seven year daily ministry of telling people why today can be a good day. And it's not based in fluff or culture. It's based on God's promises that like you said, all right, God, I'm holding you to this promise. You've made this promise. Show yourself faithful. Yeah. And I mean, holding that tension of in this world, we will have trouble and joy comes in the morning. Like those two do coexist. And that's been a journey for me in 2022 is just realizing that grief and sorrow can exist with gratitude and joy. Like those things can actually be simultaneously happening. You know, you can be experiencing the loss of a loved one and be so brokenhearted yet and sad and grieving yet over here, you can be watching your child excel at something and the joy that overtakes you. And we don't have to feel guilty about those two existing together. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing when you start wrapping your mind around that. And that is our Jesus, right? I mean, he certainly had joy and sorrow at the same time. He did. And he modeled so perfectly for us. I I remember his prayer. What it says in the Bible is when he was in the garden, knowing he was going to his certain death, he prayed all the more fervently. He modeled for us. It's okay to have these feelings. But don't oh, yes. stay there. Ask God to come into those feelings with you. Yes, and name them for sure before him. Um, so let's talk a little bit about like first of all, do you feel like depression is happening more and more in our world today? Or is it just as social media comes along and our understanding of it has increased the exposure? I think it's both. Depression is now our greatest epidemic worldwide. Really? 
And at some point in our lifetime, one in four people will experience depression. So if you go out to dinner with a group of friends and there's four people at the table, at least one of you is going to experience it at some time in their lifetime. But I do think we are better at diagnosing it now. And because of social media, social media is like a two-edged sword. But the benefit of social media is that it can make us more aware of the signs and symptoms to look for in ourselves as well as those around us that we love. Mm. But it is definitely increased. And especially over the last three years, we've seen it increase in all ages. Really? Three-year-olds up to those who are, you know, in their 90s or above. Well, and speaking of that, in our Western culture, you know, what are some of the ways that as our society has developed that um, you see that we are just more susceptible to depression and anxiety? Well, a big one is, is to your point about social media. I know. Because of social media, we compare ourselves to everyone and everything without even realizing it. I realized it just recently during Thanksgiving, I posted a picture of my family and so many people commented on what a happy family I had. And I realized in that moment, wait just a minute, Mm. I'm very blessed, but we do not have a perfect family. Right, picture may look perfect, but it's not. And that's where social media is so misleading because people spend so much time crafting the perfect picture with the perfect filter and everybody else is left looking at those images going, I'll never measure up to that. I wish I had that. Right. And so that contributes in a big way because we can so readily compare ourselves and where we feel we lack with what it looks like other people have been blessed with. Mm. And social media also shows us what's going around the world. It used to be that you had to wait until the six o'clock news to find out that there a war erupted around the world. Right. Well, now we find out about a shooting within nanoseconds because it's on social media. And that has a tendency then to bring us down. And unfortunately, I don't think people have very good boundaries when it comes to social media. When they have nothing else to do, they scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll. And what would happen if instead of spending our time mindlessly scrolling through social media, we were spending as much time in God's word? Or even if you're not in God's word, silence before God, prayer, or just realizing his presence in the place where you are, that's something um, Andy Crouch talks a lot about, like when he's been in the airport before and he's like, I just started practicing as people were walking by, like the image of God is in him. The image of God is in her. And he is like, you know, it transforms just your thought process to realize that God's presence and his image is all around us. But we're so, and I mean, I'm guilty, like put me on the phone, Um, And I just scroll and scroll and scroll. And it's just not healthy, right? It really is not. The best we can do is to have limits. You know, set yourself a timer. All right, I'm going to get on this morning for 10 minutes. And then I'm done until this evening or whatever. Right. It has to work for you. But the point I'm trying to make is I do think while social media can be a very beneficial thing, I do also think that it does contribute to declining mental health in many situations. Yeah, I mean, we, we've we seen it. It's like studies are coming out more and more. And yeah, I mean, that information overload, it's true. It's like empathy. I mean, I think that we lose empathy when 
we are constantly bombarded with this shooting, that shooting. And it doesn't mean that you have to, um, you're not being hard hearted by turning that off. Did God really ever mean for us to know what was going on in Australia and Japan and everywhere else? Because we can't like, that's not ours to control. That's his world. Well, and we also see that with the internet, unfortunately, comes a high incidence of cyberbullying. And it yes. doesn't happen to our kids. It's true. It, it's true. Ha- it happens to all of us. People somehow feel a protection behind their computer screen that they can rant and say mm-hmm. whatever they want on other people's comments and posts without it having an impact on them. Yeah. We couldn't do that before. I mean, it used to be, it only happened on the playground, right? Well, yep. now it happens within our own little space of the internet world. Yes, absolutely. Well, so tell me, what is the difference between, I'm just not feeling good, I'm feeling really down, and it's happening for a while, versus like you are clinically depressed, and you need to seek help outside of what you're currently doing? There's a couple important keys. One is, is the degree of your response greater than what is necessary for the situation? And how long does this continue? You know, so often we react to the situations around us, and sometimes we can tend to overreact, and it's just situational. Then that situation goes away and we're back to normal. But Mm -hmm. if we start noticing in ourselves or others around us that wow, there's a significant change in mood or there's a significant change in things like appetite, sleep, energy, significant change in doing the things that you previously found enjoyable. If this lasts more than about two to four weeks, Mm. chances are that you need to at least consult with your medical professional. And the reason I say medical professional is because a lot of times medical conditions can bring about symptoms of depression or anxiety. But we first want to rule out that there's not an underlying medical cause for our change in mood, energy level, sleep, appetite, and those things. If a medical condition has been ruled out, then we know that we can treat it as a mental health issue and get the appropriate help there. But it's important to know that men and women often don't present the same way. Okay. Children don't present the same way as adults and adults often don't present the same way as geriatrics. So, so yeah, what are some of those defining characteristics? I would say upwards of probably 70% who would come into my private practice that I would evaluate and realize how you're dealing with a significant mood disorder like depression. They didn't know. They didn't necessarily know that what they were feeling was consistent with depression because so often those who get really down in the dumps, they might equate that with the term depression. But a lot of people, when they're depressed, they get angry Mm. or they get irritable or Mm -hmm. agitated. And we especially see that With men, men don't usually identify with the term I'm depressed, but they could be more irritable, agitated, or angry than you. And that's frequently how they will present. But what's important to know is that no two people ever share exactly the same symptoms or manifest it in exactly the same way. It's like, Amber, if you went to the doctor and you said, you know, I'm I'm just congested and, and my eyes are watering. The doctor is likely to say, oh, well, 
you've got allergies. Well, mm-hmm. I could go to the doctor and say, I've got this runny nose and I've got a cough and I've got a sore throat. And he's like, yep, you've got allergies to ragweed. So you and I would have the same diagnosis, but we don't necessarily manifest it in terms of the exact same symptoms or the right. exact same environment. And that's what makes it difficult sometimes to get an accurate diagnosis is because we look at other people and think, oh, well, they're depressed, but I don't present that way. Mm-hmm. And so we have to look at changes in sleep, appetite, energy level, what you feel motivated to do or not yes. do. Are you starting to withdraw from people? Whereas you were previously really outgoing. Do you find yourself saying no to more activities than what you used to? All these things are suggestive that something's going on and it might be helpful to get some help. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's really, it would be really hard for people um, outside of your really close circle to even know, because I know in my life, most people would be like, I never would have thought that about Amber. And I'm like, well, yeah, because if you were only around me for a couple hours, it wasn't like I was sad all the time, but I was incredibly irritable. I was incredibly tired and I would sit in the floor and cry for hours and have no earthly idea why. And the way that I would describe it is I feel like I'm sitting in a room with all the people who love me most and I'm screaming to the top of my lungs and no one can hear me. That's not how everybody presents, as you said, but I, I will also say, and I don't know if you agree with this or not, but if you are someone who is going to someone that, you know, will talk openly about depression and asking because you think you might be depressed, I would probably go get checked out Yeah, because if you're asking the question there's a good chance that you are. And what I want you to know is there is no shame in that. Absolutely. There is no shame. In fact, I would say more credit to you for being willing to ask for help. The enemy thrives on isolating us. Yep. And I lived under that. Me too. Experienced that major depression I was so embarrassed. I thought that referral sources were going to stop referring to me because clearly I didn't have all the answers. I thought patients were going to stop coming to me because how could I help them if I couldn't even help myself? Mm-hmm. And that was the enemy. Yeah. And what I realized though was, no, when I'm actually willing to admit I'm struggling, more people can relate to that. That's right. Because I don't have it all together. It's mm-hmm. not a picture perfect life. Mm-hmm. And other people are willing to say, yeah, me too. Yes. It's yes, I agree. Um, well, as we close out here, let's say there is somebody listening who just even after hearing this conversation, they're like, I think that's me. And they still are kind of like, oh, I don't want to take that next step. Or is that next step the doctor or, you know, kind of confused, what encouragement would you give them? I mean, you just said, you know, no shame, which I would say that's the first encouragement. Um, Is there anything else that you would share with them? Go seek the help because the longer you wait, the harder it is to make yourself go. The longer you start listening to the lies, the more embarrassed you'll feel. Mm -hmm. And the doctor has to keep confidentiality. So it's not like it's going to be on a billboard, but the sooner you start getting help, the sooner you will start feeling better, but know that you are not alone in this. I've got all the alphabet soup after my name that anybody could want. And that didn't make me immune. 
That's right. I thought it should, but it did not. That was a big wake up call and a big slice to my pride. Yes. But there are resources. I've got resources I can share with Amber. I'm offering an online Bible study after the new year to help people who are struggling with depression. You don't have to go this alone. And in fact, I would encourage you not to go through it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Link arms with someone else and know that your situation is not hopeless because the God of all God's God of the universe is still on his throne and he wants help, hope, and healing for you. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, Michelle, thank you so much. If someone does want to grab some of those resources that you have, uh, share your website with us and where people can connect with you. The easiest place to find me on my website is drmichelleb.com. And I'm on all the socials at Dr. Michelle Bankson. But on my website, there's lots of free resources, tons of free resources. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you. It's been my joy. I hope you found this series on mental health and the follower of Jesus helpful. You can find all of the links mentioned and episodes one and two of the series at graceenoughpodcast.com slash depression. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast. Two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman, discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.